My name's Will DeFreeze, and this is the Sunday Scaries Podcast, your cure for the Sunday blues. Wine. It's something that can either be a cause of your anxiety come Sunday or a cure for it. Whether it's a crisp, cold glass of Sauvignon Blanc in the middle of summer or a steep glass of cab on a cold night in January, there's never really a bad time for it. Wine, in some fashion, has always interested me, but there's always been a steep learning curve. I don't know what tannins are, and as you'll learn, the legs that remain on the side of your glass while swirling also don't really mean much to me. But this week, I have a special guest, one that I was very excited about, and one that allowed me to humor him when it came to my miseducation of Merlots. His name is Ryan Arnold, and he's the wine director for McGuire Mormon Hospitality in Austin, Texas. Through our conversation, you'll not only see his passion for wine come through, but so much more. Enjoy. Ryan, first and foremost, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. So your, your official title is wine director. Correct. That sounds like a pretty ideal job for a lot of people. <laughs> what does that encompass? What does your day-to-day kind of look like? It, it, the day-to-day is different every single day. There are very few um, consistent tasks that we're pegged with being a wine director because we work in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, there's a lot that comes up 24-7. Mm-hmm. So we have um, wineless creation. We have education of staff. We have inventory. Every sommelier and wine director's nightmare. That's pretty much anyone who has ever worked in like the restaurant industry, retail, retail. industry. <laughs> it is the worst. And that is coming <laughs> up. I will be doing that at 7 a.m. on Tuesday morning. And um, the best part to me is when the guests start to arrive, whether it be lunch or dinner. Mm-hmm. And that's when we actually get to start to sell the wine that we've, we've brought in that we're so excited about. So you work for McGuire Mormon uh, in Austin. If people from Austin and people that live in Austin, they are mostly all familiar with the restaurant. Uh, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are with the restaurant group. A lot of people that listen to this podcast aren't necessarily. Um, can you explain what it is and kind of what the goal of the company is? Yes, yes. And, and I, would, I would totally agree. Before I moved here, I was for sure, I, I'm from Chicago, I was familiar with some of the restaurants. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I started looking into it and met Larry McGuire, I, I learned what MMH for short is. It's um simplest way to explain. It. It's a hospitality management company. So Larry McGuire, who's from Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. which nowadays it's, it's kind of hard to actually meet people that are born and raised here, not oh, yeah. from, not from New York or California <laughs> and, and, and Tom Mormon and, and awesome chef, super talented chef from San Antonio started the group back in 2009. So it all started when they were friends and met and opened up Lambert's, mm-hmm. which now is one of the iconic barbecue restaurants, downtown Austin. That was in 2006. Fast forward a couple years later in 2009, they opened uh, Perla's. Mm-hmm which is, that's where I just came from, actually. Okay. Seafood restaurant. But McGuire Mormon is, is a group that manages, we have beverage directors, wine director, we have service directors. We help run and manage the day-to-day of the restaurants. It's a very well-established restaurant group in Austin, and I can personally speak as somebody who's probably spent way too much money at all of those restaurants that I'm glad they exist. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so how long have you been with them? Started February... 26 of this year. Okay. So not too long. You're relatively new to it. 
Very new. Yes. Do you have any restaurants that you gravitate towards that you love visiting or that you kind of would suggest for anybody coming in town for a weekend? Yeah, I, I would say my, my favorite, like if I had to go to one restaurant every day, as far as the menu would probably have to be Joanne's. Mm-hmm. I just, I love the diner vibe in there. And then the menu itself, I mean, breakfast all day. Yeah. Right. There's not much more I have to say. No, it's great. But, and then it's also, it's a, it's a different take on Tex-Mex. I have to say one thing that didn't take long when I moved down here was how much damn Tex-Mex there is in Austin. Yes. And, and what we're doing at Joanne's, there's also a bit of, um, new California, kind of some healthier options on the menu to, um, to counter the, the Tex-Mex. The Joanne's menu is phenomenal. And I had, it took me way too long to go there after Joanne's opened. I like hesitated just because I was like, oh, it's going to be a zoo in there. I don't want to go yet. And now when I start going there, I'm like, oh, I need to start coming here more often. Margaritas are great. Breakfast tacos are great. Pretty much everything's great. Um, so what did you have to do in order to become a quote unquote wine director? Like what kind of path do you follow in order to be where you are today? It, wow, that it is... It's a path that has a lot of, I didn't set out. I will say I did go to college and I did not set out. And when I was a young person, I did not say I want to grow up and be a wine director. That to me is, is what I love most about it because it takes so many different twists and turns, uh, within, I guess, being a hospitality, um, hospitality professional Mm -hmm. within a restaurant group starting as a sommelier in 2004. So as a sommelier, I think it's kind of important to distinguish the difference between a sommelier and a wine director. Yeah. So a sommelier, you're working in a restaurant, and our job is to serve wine to the guests. It's mm-hmm. really um, essentially the same thing as a server. Mm-hmm. We just have a specialty in having to study and know more about wine. So we we inventory the wine, we cellar the wine, and then we serve it correctly. A wine director helps manage the program in several different restaurants. That, to me, is is a point of differentiation. You have several different concepts, and they're not all the same. Something that I really like about McGuire Mormon, we don't have too many of the same concepts. So say in Austin, we have 12. Yeah. We don't really duplicate a lot of them. Yeah. So in the wine director role, you might have to create a menu for a small Tex-Mex restaurant like Joanne's, and then maybe a more serious program like Jeffrey's, mm-hmm. which could have 700 selections. Yeah. Joanne's might have 20. Yeah. We have to put the same thought into each and every one of those wines. Yeah. Do you have to have any certification or anything like that in order to do it? Th- that is, that, that changes every year. <laughs> I, I would say if you ask me that question pre-2008, 2009, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the certification process has become more and more popular yeah. over the last few years due to certain characters running to prominence. Also some Netflix shows that came out you've probably heard of. Oh, yeah. Um, but you do not. The answer is no. I think from what I've seen in different restaurants, and it really all comes from the ownership, I would say experience, yeah. experience, work ethic plays into that as well. Certifications are certainly important, but I don't think if you're an aspiring wine director, you want to focus solely on those certifications. Have you gotten certified for anything or is that something that you've kind of just, you know, put your experience in front of you? I, I, I did actually along the way I did go through both the two big certification bodies are the guild of master sommeliers, mm-hmm. which is that's how you become a master sommelier. Yeah. The second being WSET wine and spirits education trust. And that is um, master of wine program. So I went through both of those and got the certified SOM, and then I went through, geez, maybe 
the advanced level at the W set. Okay. I can't even imagine going through like any SOM exam. I have a terrible palate anyway. I'm one of those people that I can smell something or I can taste something and it generates some type of memory or some type of recognition, but I don't, I can't identify it. And it's always been frustrating for me. Have you always had a palate or did you have to train that? You, de- you I still do. You certainly have to train that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I, I, I found that a lot of my coworkers and peers, if they've, say as a hobby, they're, they're chefs at home or they went to culinary school, they tend to have the best sensory palates where they can taste a wine or smell it mm-hmm. and then throw out 15 different adjectives and flavors or fruit aromas or vegetable aromas because uh, they've essentially been training for that in the kitchen. But if you've not come from that background, you have to train your palate for sure. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to taste and then ask yourself, what am I smelling? What am I tasting? There are certain formulas, different fruit groups, different vegetable, different non-fruit groups that you can follow. There is a system to tasting. Okay. And so you moved down here from Chicago. Yes. Um, tell me about Squire. Squire Wine, that was a little company that I started, geez, probably seven, six years ago now. Mm-hmm. And that was when I had, I was a little bit more idealistic, yeah. younger and had more time, most importantly, on my hands. That was California. It still is California-based wineries that were a little bit younger. Now, a pretty famous wine journalist named John Benet toined, uh, coined the term New California. So picture this. You have, let's say, John Lockwood. He makes Enfield Wines. Or you have any number of small production. Michael Cruz, Mm -hmm. really sought after producer right now. They're making the wine and they run a small mailing list. Mm -hmm. And then they start to sell their wine in, say, a big market like Manhattan. And other than that, they don't have anyone else working for them. So I tried to act with my friend Steve as a conduit to bring these highly sought after in California and New York wineries to Chicago. Okay. They didn't necessarily, when you're in the wine business with a larger scale winery, you have more resources. You can hire a sales manager. These smaller wineries, they were basically running production, the winemaking and marketing themselves. So Squire, the whole idea was to really provide a platform to bring these wines in and then create a community in Chicago mostly restaurant sommeliers to showcase these wines too. Okay. So we really act as acted as the voice for these wineries in Chicago. Okay. Interesting. Uh, you were named, you were also named wine enthusiast 40 under 40 in 2015. Uh, was that, how validating was that for you? And how did that even come about? How did you uh, become a name that they would come across? That, I don't know if I'll ever know the answer <laughs> to the latter, but was it validating? It was, it was certainly cool. Yeah. You know, I, I got an email and I think it was August or so. And I don't know if it was validating. It was, it was kind of fun. And I was just like, wow, how did they out of 40 people say out of 40, there's maybe only seven or eight picked for wine. Yeah. And it was maybe not validating, but certainly, certainly a fun process. And I don't know how they found maybe I like to travel mm-hmm. part of, part of the job of being a wine director. I think you need to, you need to be curious mm-hmm. and you need to be traveling to tastings and trade shows and other cities and, and network with your peers in other markets. Uh, but that was that was fun, yeah. When you travel uh, for pleasure, do you does wine play a role in that? Yes, and that is the hardest part. It is our job. Most people are like Ryan. You you sit around and taste wine all day. That's not that's not a real job, mm-hmm. right? So when I go to any, I love mountains. Yeah. My hobby is like I love snowboarding, mountain biking. So it happens to take me close to wine producing areas. Yeah, whether it be Sonoma. 
mm-hmm. Willamette Valley, whether it be Piedmont. So it, it's hard to separate. Usually my vacations tend to coincide with my work. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, any regions that you gravitate more toward, whether it be to go to or to just have wines from there? When you see something on a bottle, are you like, oh, that might be something I'm interested in? I, I mean, my first love and, and really still, my, every, every time I go for a wine list, I go right to Italy, yeah. specifically Piedmont. Okay. I, I was fortunate enough to go to university there for a bit and, and, and studied and worked at a winery there. So I love the wines of Northern Italy, specifically Barbaresco, a grape called Nebbiolo. Okay. That's, that's probably my go-to region. So I have to admit, Italian wines are the wines that I'm the least familiar with. When I go to an Italian restaurant and it's just like a purely Italian wine list, I get so intimidated. Can you give me like a beginner's bird's eye view of Italian wines? I know (laughs) that's a lot to ask. Yeah, of course. Um, A bird's eye view. First and foremost, I I think that if you're at a restaurant, there's sometimes talking to a sommelier or a server might be intimidating because you might think that we're going to upsell you and make you spend more money. Yeah. I so think I'd say not to, not to uh, make you feel bad, but I think that's what a lot of people think whenever they talk to somebody. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh man, here comes somebody in a suit and tie or a nice dress. They're going <laughs> to, they're going to make me spend more money. But I'd say first start by, by asking somebody at the restaurant yeah. uh, to help navigate because that is what we live for. And we get so geeked out yeah. most of the time. That, I'm not saying that won't happen. Somebody might try to upsell you, but if they were trained correctly, it would be really to guide you to, to something special. And before you go into a restaurant and you start looking at an Italian wine list, really start to focus on what you like to drink. As yeah. simple as, Hey, I love red wine. I like light bodied red wine. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then if you tell me that I'm going to sell you Chianti probably Yeah. Okay. from Tuscany. See, we, I, we used to go to June's all the time for happy hour. We still go there all the time, but we, we've scaled back just because we were like, all right, we're going to June's too many times. Um, for those people that don't know, that is a McGuire Mormon restaurant um, that opened like two or three years ago. Yep. And there was a waiter who we used to have, and he used to talk us very straight when it came to wines. And we really enjoyed that to the point where we were like, all right, we need to start requesting him because I actually trust him to give us the wines that we want. And he kind of started to know what we liked as we would go in. And I think that's like super important. Um, I don't want to say that wine. Well, actually I think it's fair to say this. I think that has has a reputation of kind of being a snobby industry. And I think that's a reputation that's not necessarily fair. I, whenever I talked to somebody about it, like when we went to Napa, everyone was very straight talking with us. Mm -hmm. Um, is that something that you've had to try to get people to get over? Is that something you encounter? Yeah, I think I think that snobby and pretentious. I think there's it's it can be intimidating, mm-hmm. and I, I believe that as as a country. So if you think about it this way, a few years ago we surpassed France as we're now the largest consumer of wine in the world, but not per capita. Yeah. So we drink a ton of wine in America. But just a small amount of the population. Yeah. So whoever they are, they're they're drinking a they're shitload drinking of a wine. A lot of wine. Right. So so I get long story short, it's not in our culture. That's changing. It has not. I should say it has not been in our culture. But if you go to places like Italy and France, it's so day to day. You get jugs of wine. You drink it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, when it really started to catch on, it was seen as intimidating and pretentious. But I feel like nowadays you have a lot of people that are wearing jeans and t-shirts and serving you Dujac. Yeah. Really f- fancy burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So if some, if you want somebody to, if you want to guide somebody into, you know, kind of getting into wine, does it worry you that now there's all these kind of documentaries like some on Netflix and things like that out there? Does it breed this kind of fake knowledge of wine that might, you know, taint the actual education that you have with it? No, I, you know, I think uh, it's funny because now I've, I've been doing this for, geez, my goodness, almost 16 years now. And I think you can almost define like pre-SOM documentary and post-SOM documentary yeah. what the industry was like. Yeah. And um, I think it did a heck of a lot of good things for us. And I mean, they really helped keep that the certification, the Guild of Master Psalms alive, in my opinion. Oh, they were probably psyched. <laughs> they were psyched for sure. I mean, if you look at attendance pre that movie and post, mm-hmm. yeah, they were definitely still riding that wave. And and I think it's great. I think more attention to wine. I think, um, and man, it's referenced every day still. There's now the third documentary that just came out, the third part of that documentary. I would be lying if I said that it didn't have some type of effect on me being interested by it. I mean, I don't, I still don't know a ton about wine. Uh, I want to know more. It very much does interest me and I like trying new and interesting things. Um, it, it definitely caught my eye and made me much more interested. And I think that's pretty natural. That a hundred percent, you know, I, I haven't seen all of them, but, but I would say that that is more about the, the process of taking the hardest test in the world, mm-hmm. not so much about, about the, the, the world of wine and the industry mm-hmm. of, of, of working in the wine business, mm-hmm. maybe more with the into the bottle series, but but yeah, that that um, I'm happy to call a few of the main characters in that show uh, friends cool. to this day, which is kind of fun. But that is that's a rigorous test. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people that are trying to get into wine that might be intimidated? I would say take notes. So okay. probably my, something that happens all the time, kind of like you reference, you go to June's, you find a new wine, you taste it, you love it. Maybe not notes, take a picture, but just so you can remember, because when you're at a party. Take notes of what you drank because day to day you probably drink more wine than you think. Yeah. But do you remember what it was that you enjoyed? I can remember a label. I can't remember the flavor that I liked. So I, I think that, you know, I think that that's probably the best way because to learn wine can be expensive. Mm-hmm. So if you do start to be like, man, I kind of want to take up wine. First and foremost, email or text your friends and family mm-hmm. because the best way to do it is start a little group because mm-hmm. that way you can each share the cost of a bottle I mean, who wants to be in a book club, right? I'd much rather be in a wine group, maybe on Sunday evening, you each get together, say there's seven of you, you bring a bottle of wine, taste, and there you just learn seven different bottles. This is such a better idea than a book club. Right. <laughs> I like tease the idea of doing a Sunday Scaries book club, and then I realized, I was like, Will, you don't read nearly enough to do this. I just need to start doing the uh, the wine club That's and it. getting people into it. There it is. Um, I mean, it seems like a steep learning curve. What can I do if I go to a vineyard or a restaurant with an extensive wine list? What's something that I can do in order to kind of uh, make it easier on me? I know a lot of times they just say, like, drink what you like. But sometimes I don't even know why I like something. I will taste a glass of Cabernet and I probably won't be able to differentiate it from any other Cabernet on the menu. Yeah, that's 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 something that you need to to take a moment. Say, for instance, you like Cabernet. Okay, Mm -hmm. ask yourself, what is Cabernet? Yeah. And you'd find out it's probably a red wine that's mm-hmm. full-bodied. Yeah. So then say, okay, well, I love full-bodied red wines. So, for instance, when we have a lot of guests come in the restaurant, I want a glass of Pinot Grigio. Mm-hmm. They're telling you more than that. They're telling you they love crisp, unoaked white wines, light-bodied. So you can guide them to Muscadet. You can guide them to other wines. Okay. So I would say when you start to drink and you're about to travel, 
really find out what categories of wine you like. Okay. That way you go to a, a winery in Napa or a restaurant, you can get really right down to the brass tacks. Can I ask you a couple different uh, types of wine and what you could assume on someone's taste based on those if they tell you that they like that at a restaurant? So if somebody says they like a Merlot, what assumptions do you have regarding their flavor? So if someone... That's funny because maybe not for this podcast, but there's there's some sometimes when somebody tells you what varietal they like, you can uh-huh. make assumptions based on their personality, yeah, and and kind of certain trends within <laughs> within within society. But I would say Merlot to me, I love Merlot. Yeah, Paul Giamatti, God bless him, I love that show. Sideways, he ruined Merlot. He ruined Merlot, but but <laughs> that was the breakout role. I still watch that movie. If you've not seen Sideways, even for non wine geeks, it was pretty hilarious. But to me, that's a medium bodied wine. Okay, it's agreeable, right? I yeah. mean, it's not going to be overwhelmingly dry. It's not going to be sweet. Merlot is really good. Yeah, and it's just like I still try to st- circa ninety nine two thousand. I couldn't give away Chianti. Yeah, trying to sell Chianti. Um, it was ruined as well. And the reputation, I mean, those things matter. Same thing with Merlot happened in 0304. It's slowly starting to come back, but it kills me when people are like, I'll take Malbec, 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 but they won't even think to look at Merlot. I went to a uh, vineyard. It was O'Brien in Napa uh, last summer. And when they brought out the Merlots, I was like, well, I mean, like, I've only seen Sideways. I don't know anything about wine. And I was like, I don't want Merlot. Yeah, let's just like, yeah, skip this. He ruined it. And then we tried it, and I was like, oh, that was actually my favorite wine. Yeah. And so now we signed up for that club, and we get that in the mail. And so yeah, I, I kind of ate my words. And I'm like, yeah, he just completely wronged Merlot. It, it's, yes. And if you're in Napa, <laughs> and you're at a tasting room, or you're at a wine list, say a restaurant has 10 Cabernets and 10 Merlots, and they're all current vintage. Mm-hmm. Younger meaning, yeah. I'd much rather drink Merlot than okay. Cabernet. Why is that? It's just to me. I think it's going to be, and and that's a question that we always are really a challenge, not so much a question. That is sommeliers and wine directors. How do we build in age and vintage depth into our programs? I mean, we, it's a kind of a puzzle. It seems like you would have to. It would be it seems very difficult to do so. A hundred percent, and it varies state to state, mm-hmm. county by county. The TTB, uh, they regulate alcohol in the country, and they make it very difficult because most wine sold into restaurants through distribution is it's the winery's current offerings. Yeah, And wine not only ages for quite a while, if you buy the right wine, but it gets better and develops. Mm-hmm. So for me, if I'm forced to drink young wine, I'd rather drink Merlot than Cabernet. Okay, noted. Yeah, I, I, I've completely eaten my words when it comes to Merlot. I've never, like, talked shit on it or anything like that, but I definitely had this stigma in my head of mm-hmm. how I should feel about it. Um, say that somebody is going to uh, a tasting and they want to sound a little smarter than they are. Do you have any terms or anything they could add to their vocabulary that might make the people around them think, oh, they kind of know something? <laughs> so is this amongst friends or maybe they're at a tasting that they're actually trade wine professionals there let's say friends let's say they're just trying to impress their friends and so they can say something that might not be totally accurate and somebody might roll their eyes if they actually know i think it's good to throw out the word uh tannins okay i love when you're drinking red wine you know in in restaurants when we go to the table a lot of guests will say dry Mm -hmm. you know tannin is that that sensation it's found in skins and seeds and a lot of times it'll literally bond a saliva and dry out your mouth okay um, or almost like an oversteep tea. Okay. Some people love that sensation. Yeah. Other don't. So if you're drinking Cabernet or Barolo or Amarone and it's just super dry, say, hmm, that's a very, that's a very tannic red wine. 
What about um, when it comes to legs? Everyone talks about the legs when they swirl it. And oh, I, that's another good I one. I would assume that most people don't even know why they're swirling it in the first place, but I still do it. I don't know why I'm swirling it. I mean, just to get it a little more aerated. Is Completely, that- yeah. Involuntary reaction. You pick up a glass, you have to swirl it. Mm-hmm. And th- th- it is, um, sure, it is It is to aerate, aerate it, but a lot of times you can learn a hell of a lot about a wine without even tasting it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I urge all the time when I'm teaching classes or with friends your first instinct is to pick up the glass, swirl, and taste it right away. But look at it for a few moments and smell it because the legs can tell you if there's maybe residual sugar in the wine, okay. if it's going to be higher or lower alcohol, and then that can help guide you to what grape it is or is it grown in a warm part of the world, a cold part of the world. Um, are those legs clear mm-hmm. or can you not see through them? Is there actually color clinging to the glass? Okay. I... I I did not realize there was so much to it. You I can always, learn a lot. Yeah. I had this assumption for my entire life that like just the the longer that the legs stood there, the the better the wine was, and I I would assume that's probably not that accurate. No, you you could argue a case where that that, that, <laughs> could, that could be accurate, but yeah, I mean, really, what we're looking for is it's surface tension, right? I mean, are those legs moving slowly down the glass? Yeah. Are they thin? Are they thick? And and from that, um, you could probably make a pretty good uh, educated guess before you even taste the wine. Okay. Are you a red wine or white wine guy, or is it completely situational for you? I think it's so situational. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say I default to white wine for sure. Yeah. Okay. Did did you default to that when you were living in Chicago, or has living? We talked about this right before we recorded that people in Texas do not mind drinking a hearty white or red wine when it's ninety five degrees outside. Oh my goodness. It is. And I don't know. It was a very disturbing thing happened this morning. I was listening to the radio and the host is like, it is officially summer and we are officially fall because we're now in the mid nineties <laughs> and they were exciting. And I was waiting for him to laugh or for it to be a joke. I'm like, this is crazy like, that no, this is just depressing. At this we point. are celebrating the arrival of fall with 94 degrees. Luckily, I started drinking white wine and preferring white wine years and years ago. So mm-hmm. I guess I've been prepared my transition down to Texas. What's your favorite varietal of white? My favorite varietal of white, probably Gruner Veltliner. It changes from time to time. And like you said, situational, a lot with what I'm eating, depending on the diet. Mm-hmm. But right now, Austrian, so the main white grape of Austria, okay. Gruner Veltliner, I love that. Okay. I, I can't confidently say whether or not I've had one, but... Uh, who knows? Maybe I have in the past. And we have them all over McGuire Mormon restaurants, okay. especially at June's. And I would say, I mean, go for it. You're never going to spend that much money on it. They're typically going to be medium bodied, unoaked, and it, especially with food. And they're not sweet. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think they're sweet because they're bottled in that kind of Riesling looking shape bottle. But it's definitely worth taking a chance on. A lot of white wines have a bad reputation for being like too sweet for people. Yeah. And people will complain about that, whether it's fair or not. I mean, I know a lot of people that just won't drink Chardonnay. And when I've tasted Chardonnays, I'm like, actually, these are some of my, like, I gravitate towards those more than a lot of other things. Um, Do do you think that white wine among amateur wine tasters has some kind of bad reputation? Or is that just something I've made up in my head? You know, no, I I I think it's, I think you're right. I think that there's a a perceived lack of value. For whatever reason, I think that when you're an amateur wine taster, you just think red wine is more expensive and yeah. it, you're getting more for your dollar. It's a hundred percent the mentality it's, that I had when I first started, like when yeah. I saw Psalm for the first time, I was like, Oh, I got it. Like I got to drink red wines if I want to look cool. Right. 
but that's not really how it goes. But all those geeks, I mean, saw like a lot of Psalm geeks, like we all like, we love white wine. Okay. Yeah. Like, like really crisp, high acid white wine, whether it be like Chenin Blanc or Veltliner or, you know, Chablis, mm-hmm. or, you know, Chardonnay from France. Yeah. But, but Chardonnay is a tricky one. We, we have, we struggle with it all the time because there, there are two camps. You either love unoaked, light, refreshing Chardonnay, yeah. or you like the oaky, buttery Chardonnay. That's what you always hear people say. Two totally oh, different so styles. Buttery. So buttery. Yeah, yeah. If somebody is planning a trip, uh, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are kind of, you know, in their mid to late 20s. Uh, they're traveling. They like to get into wine. Where would you recommend that they go if they're going to go somewhere in the United States to do a wine tour, a wine trip? I would 100% say Oregon, that's, Willamette Valley. That's where I'm so interested by and have not gone. It's, I, I'll, I will say this, it's, it's not set up for tourism, I would say, as much as Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. But, and I love it for that. Yeah. And it's, it's close to, you don't have quite the amount of traffic as San Francisco to Sonoma and Napa between Portland, Portland and Willamette Valley. And you've got the river there. I mean, the Columbia, and then you've got the Pacific Ocean, and then you can go to the Columbia Gorge. Okay. The gorge right now, that right there between Washington and Oregon, is making some of my favorite wines. I'm going to make my fiance listen to that part twice because I would love to go up to Oregon and do that. No sales tax. Oh, really? Don't, yep. Don't sleep on that. And I mean, <laughs> the Portland food scene right now is one of my favorites. Yeah. I've never done the Pacific Northwest. I've never ventured further up than Northern California. And so it sounds like something I just need to do at this point. Got it. This week's episode is brought to you by Bespoke Post. When you're constantly on the go, grinding away at the home or office, hanging out with friends, there's not always time to think about upgrading your style or apartment. That's why I love getting a new box of awesome from Bespoke Post every month. These guys are out scouting for quality and unique products to send in each box. Now you can experience it too at boxofawesome.com. Just this past week, I received a cocktail shaker, something my apartment desperately needed. It looks great, and it works even better. To get started, visit boxofawesome.com and answer a few short questions that will help them get a feel for the boxes that go best with your style. Whether you're in search of the perfect drink, a well-kept pad, or jet setting in style, Bespoke Post improves your life one box at a time. Each box goes for under 50 bucks, but has more than $70 worth of unique gear waiting inside for you. The first of each month, you'll receive an email with your box details, and you'll have five days to change colors or sizes or add extra goods to your box. If you're not feeling that month's box, simply skip it. To get 20% off of your first subscription box, go to boxofawesome.com and enter code SCARIES at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code SCARIES for 20% off of your first box. Spoked post, theme boxes for guys who give a damn. Additionally, this week is also brought to you by Dave. If you're like me, you're not always paying attention to your bank account balance, especially on Sundays. The moment you see you're going to be overdrawn, it is too late. So you end up spending $37 on a vodka soda thanks to bank fees. Introducing the Dave app, putting an end to overdraft fees for good. Dave is the number one budgeting app in America because it saves you from overdraft fees, tells you about upcoming bills, and can advance you $75 from your next paycheck with no credit check and no interest. Get the Dave app for just $1 per month. That's $12 a year, which is way less than an overdraft fee, and you'll never have to pay one again. 
Dave will help you budget for upcoming expenses, text you if you're spending too much, and if you need cash fast, advance you $75 in just 90 seconds. Mark Cuban is an investor in Dave because he got crushed by overdraft fees in his 20s and wants to help you never pay an overdraft fee again. 3 million people are already using it to save up to $1,000 a year in overdraft fees. That's why it's the number one budgeting app in the App Store. Go to dave.com scaries because it really helps the show if you let them know that you heard from here. Then download Dave and never pay another overdraft fee again. It's immediate savings. Go now to dave.com scaries. Spelled just like it sounds, D-A-V-E, dave.com scaries. Do you want to answer some Sunday questions? Yeah, sure. Being in the restaurant industry, I know a lot of people don't have Sundays off. Sunday is a very big work day for a lot of people. Do you have that kind of schedule? Are Mondays kind of your your day off to relax or? Not not really. It's um kind of, you could potentially work seven days. Yeah. Now, so, some days might be, you have to go in the restaurant for three or four hours. They're, you know, they're not necessarily 12 hours, seven days a week, but sometimes I do have Sundays off mm-hmm. and, but it's just not one of those sacred days, right? Like yeah. a nine to fiver Monday through Friday. Like yeah. I love it when everyone's like, oh, Friday's here. I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, that's basically uh, our Monday. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so if I opened a refrigerator at home right now, what would I find in it? Well, it's pretty, maybe, I love it, but it's probably pretty embarrassing. I've, I've been made fun of. Um, it's not very impressive. I, I love, right now, I, I know, in fact, exactly what's in there. I had to go to Costco for my first time in months mm-hmm. for my dog's new food, okay. new diet. So when I was there, I found these cool little paleo bars. Okay. And then um, there's some Greek yogurt, Rambler, a couple yes. of cans, yep. which, my goodness, do I love that. I just found <laughs> Rambler when I moved to Austin. Topo Chico is great too, but um, cans of sparkling water, granola bars, anything I can eat quickly. Yeah. Because I don't really, I'm not a cook. I don't prepare a lot at home. Do you eat a lot at the restaurants? I, I do. I do. Do you have a favorite dish at any of the restaurants? Um, that's That that would be hard to pick. Yes. I would probably say I I get to spend, fortunately, a lot of time in, in our restaurant up in Aspen. Mm-hmm. The uh, Clark's. Yeah. We have, yep. We have one in Clarksville here and then one one up in Aspen. And my favorite dish is there, and it's the crispy red snapper. Okay. But, I mean, that being said, I haven't tried every dish. I'm mm-hmm. still pretty new. But I do, I think spending time in the restaurant, even not working, is, is important, almost yeah. imperative. Because you get to see, you, you have to really be in the restaurants and absorb service, music, lighting, yeah. food. Um, so I'm, I'm in them all the time. Yeah. And it is a goal to try and eat every item. Within my first year. I think I might just make that goal just for my lifetime. <laughs> I don't think first year would be fiscally responsible, but we could get there. Two years, maybe. Yeah, who knows? Um, what are your coping mechanisms? How do you relax? What what do, what relaxes you? That is been been kind of a pursuit of the last five years, trying to figure that out, because I just tend to naturally run at a pretty high speed. And, and if you've ever worked in restaurants, working service and on the floor is it's... Um, it's adrenaline. It's, it's pure, a rush. It's, it's a it's a huge rush, pure adrenaline, and and trying to turn it off. Because going back to question earlier, whether you're on vacation or even if you're in your home city and you have the night off, going out to eat at a non McGuire Mormon restaurant, mm-hmm. a place you might not work, you still feel like you're at work because you're still yeah. critiquing everything, right? Because working in restaurants, it almost ruins it for you because you can't. It's really hard to turn it off. Well, you're also working for a restaurant group that does everything very, very well. And it's clear that they take a lot of time um, 
you know, spending, they spend a lot of time making sure that things are done the way that they want it, whether it's everything from the menu to the service to just the aesthetics of the restaurant. And so I imagine that critiquing it is something that you do often. And that's something that, I mean, with great admiration, both Larry and Tom are in the restaurants morning, day and night. Mm -hmm. There's a thought that for our industry, our restaurants are, they're a sexy business to be in. And I see a lot of people opening restaurants. Are they ever there? Rarely, maybe like once a month, yeah. you really have to be in there um, to critique every one of those points. Yeah, because it's 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 the food that we and that's where it starts and stops. But it's really everything that ties into to make that experience. Yeah, which is what I think McGuire Mormon and two. I mean, I, I I think too. What's interesting, I don't know if this was true. You you might be able to speak to this, but 150 or so people a day are moving here. It's the, it's very close to that, I believe. Which is it's I mean I. It's unfathomable. The amount of people I meet that really aren't from here and, and what we're doing at MMH is trying to really uh, preserve what's the, the history of Austin dining. Mm-hmm. And, re- and really, I think that that Larry and Tom have an idea of kind of the pulse of what's going on, what the city needs. Yeah. Because I've noticed just in my short seven months here that there are new groups, new chefs that are like, wow, Austin's pretty dope. Let's open a restaurant there. And it, it takes a lot. You have to know the DNA and the fabric of not just a city, but a specific neighborhood. Yeah. Super, oh, yeah. Super important. I mean, something that I was looking forward to when I moved down here was the, all the live music. Yeah. And while I'm not going to poo-poo the live music, I really have been more taken by all the new restaurants and existing restaurants even before it. It's something that I just had no idea was so blossoming here. And I'm so happy about it because I do like going out to eat. And so it's, it's a good thing. I'm going to have to get some live music tips. I haven't really had nights to go check out any live music, mm-hmm. but I'm looking forward to oh, Yeah, you're kind of up against that. it with the schedule. Yeah. <laughs> but but I'll tell you, coping me- mechanisms, I love riding my bike. Okay. And really being alone because the hardest part of this job is you're around people all the time. You have to be on all the time, not just in front of the staff, but from when you wake up to when you're interacting with every single employee in the building um, it's contagious and you have to be super optimistic and positive because if you're not, if you're having a bad day, uh, it, it brings down the energy within the building there's and that a, takes a lot a out of ripple effect. Big time. You big can't time. just sit down at your desk and huddle away in your cubicle and not talk to anybody for the day. If you're in a bad mood in the service industry, you always have to be on, always have to be on. And, and that to me, I mean, hospitality is first and foremost, what we do. Mm-hmm. Wine happens to be, uh, a fun part of that, yeah. the, the path I chose was to, you know, to taste wine, procure it and sell it. But to me, it's the interaction with the guest and, and how fortunate we are that, you know, in life, whether you're having a bad day, it can fall to us to really make your day better. Mm-hmm. Whether it's just a small interaction with uh, a, a certain dish yeah. or a certain wine that you've just turned the said guest on to. Yeah. The coping mechanisms. I love yoga too. Meditation, See, biking, snowboarding. I need snowboarding. to get more yoga. <laughs> yoga is awesome. It's, I mean, I'm horrible at it. I've been doing it. I think I started in 2006 and I'm not I'm still inflexible. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm one of the least flexible people I know. I've always been like that. I used to play sports all the time and I still have no flexibility. Something you said earlier, which I think is actually a skill and a lot of people would probably wouldn't consider it a skill is being good at being alone is taking advantage of your alone time. It's something that I got very good at. I lived in my hometown for uh, several years in my 20s, and it's a very uh, seasonal place. And so during the wintertime, I had a lot of downtime, and I got very good at amusing myself. And I think that's why I started to like Sundays so much, because I was like, okay, this is my time to do whatever I want. 
And a lot of times that ends up with me being at June's at five o'clock. So. <laughs> but your morning's off, maybe morning's yep. alone. Yeah. I mean, being alone and, and I, by definition, like that means no phone, you're mm-hmm. not on your computer. I mean, if you can and, and try to do this, just sit with your own thoughts yeah. for 15 minutes with no distractions, it's not uh, you could, whatever, meditation, trendy word now, but it's not very easy. I think it's a form of meditation no matter what. I think if you're sitting there and you have no screen or anything in front of you and you are alone with your thoughts, I think that qualifies as meditation. Completely agree. I, I told my friend I was struggling with with trying to quote unquote meditate. And she's like, well, you ride your bike sometimes for seven hours. I mean, A, you're a psycho and B, <laughs> B that that is a form of meditation. Yeah. So I guess that's true. I mean, yeah. Anytime that I try to sit down and actually meditate, you know, shut my eyes, you know, I, I did some apps that kind of trained you on how to do it and I've tried doing it. And now when I try to do it, I've become decent at it. I would say I don't get bored. I more just kind of think, okay, I need to go do other things right now. Um, but it is a skill and it's something that is relaxing. So really important. Do you track your iPhone screen time? I do not. I do not. I don't. Maybe I'll get into that. If you did, do you think you'd be happy or sad with how much you're on your phone? I would probably be sad. I would probably be sad. So so in the in the wine director role and let's just say restaurant manager role, mm-hmm. you're constantly getting text messages and emails. Yeah. Because a lot of fun stuff happens, you know, at midnight, at 10 a.m. So do you get do you have friends that just send you like wine lists and they're like, what should I get all the time? How do you get tired of it? Or do you, is it kind of like, all the oh, t- thank you. <laughs> oh, you know, I try not, not it's not just exclusively wine lists, but it's like, hey, I'm going to Tuscany in six months. Can you set me up with all the all the restaurants and all the tours to see all the wineries in Tuscany? <laughs> and it's I mean, it's it's almost um, it's almost a daily whether it's on yeah. Instagram or a Facebook message. Mm-hmm. My cousin is getting married next year, so I'm helping him pick out the wines for the wedding. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, all the time. It's something that people don't have. It's something that people can't just, like, Google sometimes. So, I mean, it makes sense that they would go to you, but I would imagine it just gets a little annoying sometimes. It does a little bit, but it's also like, oh, cool. I mean, they're at dinner, and they're thinking, you know, hey, let's ask Ryan what, yeah. what wine we should get. Yeah, that's not And bad. I usually do. I, I, I don't just look at it, and I do put some thought into it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I try to respond as quickly as possible. This is just a random question that has nothing to do with the Sunday questions. It should, if somebody likes a certain wine, do you think that they should drink that wine over trying to pair something with a meal? I, I think so, for sure. Okay. I think at first and foremost, it's really fun to work with guests mm-hmm. throughout their menu and their night and pair wine. But I would say first and foremost, really drink uh, what you like. Interesting. Okay. That's good to know. I've always, I've never really subscribed to you know pairing things, mainly because I don't really even know what to pair. But I don't feel bad about drinking like, a Cabernet with a piece of fish or like a glass of crisp white wine with a steak. It's just whatever I'm feeling in the moment I try to do. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've served dozens of raw oysters with big full-bodied Syrahs. <laughs> I mean, I'm cringing inside when, you know, my hand is shaking when I'm pouring it into the glass. But, um, no, I mean, drink what you like. I think it's cool and be open to, you know, if, if the server has a suggested pairing, go for it. Try yeah. it. It is fun to see how sugar can balance out heat. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, drink coffee? I do drink coffee. How do you take your coffee? Almost exclusive. So if I'm at home in a French press. Okay. So really simple. Never with any cream. Just okay. al- always black. Okay. That's pretty much what I do. I don't I don't really subscribe to cream too much. Sometimes I might do some like some type of milk in order to you know, cut out the acidity a little bit, but most of the time I just go black. I want to taste it. Yeah. 
I like bit. I like bitter, bitter coffee. Me too. And I can only take one cup these days, or else my mind starts to race. I don't know what happened in my as I get older, <laughs> but I can only have one now, and I hate it because I like the taste of coffee and I like drinking it. Uh, how do you take your eggs? Eggs? Well, that's kind of like my wine. It's it, it's definitely situational. I oh, if I'm at home, what? Well, it, it's situational. So I love them over easy, mm-hmm. and then sometimes just a real light scramble. Okay. So almost when you think it's they're not cooked, turn it off and then let it sit for a moment so they're runny, I guess. Yep. But yeah, scramble, and I love just kind of like diced green onion, ham. I like, I think you and I are very matched up in that as well. We could have, we should have breakfast together sometimes. Let's it do sounds it. sounds like we're, it's right up our alley. I'll bring the coffee. Perfect. Uh, do you have any Instagram follows right now that you like? Yeah, you know, right now, I just the other day, actually, probably the most recent follow is Austin Hikes or Hike Austin, I think it's okay. called, because I'm still trying to learn the area. Yeah. And I mean, I haven't really got to see outside of really within two miles of the river yet, mm-hmm. but it, I'm super stoked because it looks like there's a lot of really cool things out in hill country and, and that, that the pictures that they put on there of the surrounding areas of Austin, whether it be hiking or mountain biking or rock climbing. I need to start following that. I, the one thing I've had trouble with in Austin, I've been here, I've been here longer than you. I've been here for just over four years. I haven't found a place that I can just hop in the car, drive to and feel like complete solitude, like quiet. If you find that, let me know. I'll let you know. Um, and finally, this, whether it's a Sunday or just a casual day off, what does your ideal day consist of? Ideal day, it's exercise. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something to be said for really getting your heart rate up. So okay. whether that in any form, whether it's yoga, running, biking, that to me is, you just don't get to do it every day, right? So on my day off, it would be lots of coffee, exercise, and then just a chill night. Probably at home. I don't really like going out as much anymore. Yeah. On my one or two nights off, I'll probably just chill at home and that's 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 it. That doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, pretty simple. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Of I hope that thank uh, you. I hope that sometime when I'm out at one of these restaurants I see you out there. You I probably sooner than later. <laughs> If you liked what you heard today, make sure to subscribe, review, or tell a friend in need about this podcast. By subscribing, you guarantee that each and every episode gets delivered directly to your phone every Sunday morning. You can also follow along on Twitter, which is at SundayScaries, and Instagram, which is at Sunday.Scaries. Or you can follow me both on Twitter and Instagram at WillDefreeze. And remember, always trim the wicks on your scented candles. See you next Sunday.